brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Mongolia, also known as Mongol Uls, is a country located in the northern part of Asia. Please note, Mongolia is not the same as Inner Mongolia, which is an autonomous region that's part of China. To the north of Mongolia is Russia, and to the south is China. Size-wise, Mongolia is around 605,000 square miles, made up of 21 provinces, and population as of recent is around 3,250,000. The capital city of Mongolia is Ulaanbaatar, a city where almost half of the population resides in, also known as one of the coldest capitals in the world. Mongolia is considered a pretty homogenous society. Around 95% of the population is considered Mongols, while the remaining 5% consists of Kazakhs, Tuvans, and other minorities. The official language is Mongolian, and religion-wise, more than 50% of the population follow the Buddhism teachings, but around 40% of the population are considered non-religious, which I find to be pretty interesting. Less than 10% of the population follow Islam, shamanism, Christianity, and other religions. Very little farming land exists in Mongolia, and it's mostly covered with mountains, grasslands, and deserts. Basically, the southern half of Mongolia is a cold desert land, while the northern half is more green and inhabitable. This also ties in with the Mongolian way of living, where a portion of the population live a nomadic lifestyle. It's kind of similar to what you may already be thinking. All these people riding around grasslands on really cool horses. Fun fact, there's probably way more horses and sheep in Mongolia than people. Now, let's talk some history. Human beings have been inhabiting the area we now know of as Mongolia and Central Asia since 850,000 years ago. There were also Upper Paleolithic art and artifacts found in that area that dates back approximately 40,000 years, which includes cave paintings and handcrafted items. Remember, though, countries didn't really exist back then, so it wasn't a proximate area around Mongolia, Central Asia, and Russia. Before Mongolia became a nomadic culture, it was actually once an agricultural society for a couple thousand years, but later shifted to a more nomadic lifestyle. 
the first thousand or so years of modern-ish Mongolian history is basically filled with various nomadic tribes and confederations, such as the Kurultai, the Keshig, and the Xiongnu. In case you didn't know, the Great Wall of China was actually built because of the Xiongnu, as they were becoming rather aggressive, and the Chinese Qin Dynasty was not really comfortable with that. Slightly off-topic, but fun fact. The Great Wall of China was actually built in various stages, and it took over 2,000 years to complete. Mongolia was ruled by the Xiangbei Empire during the early Common Era years, but was later on taken down by the Gokturks in the year 555. Fast forward a few hundred years to the 12th century. A guy by the name of Temujin rose up and united a bunch of tribes. And his title was then changed to none other than the powerful Genghis Khan. He's basically related to every other person on the planet, probably myself included, as I am around 9.8% Mongolian Manchurian, according to 23andMe. So you should probably know his name. Genghis Khan was a fierce guy, which is how he ended up taking over all these tribes and land, resulting in the Mongol Empire. The largest land empire ever. At one point, 22% of land on Earth was part of his empire. If that's not impressive, I don't know what is. So that was peak Mongolia. And after Genghis Khan died, the empire was divided into four khanates, or kingdoms. They were pretty independent of each other, and the khanate that was located in China and parts of Southeast Asia at the time. Was under the rule of Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan. He took over and established the Yuan Dynasty. So that was a dynasty in Chinese history that lasted about a century, and it was actually established and ruled in a traditional Chinese style, despite Kublai Khan being Mongolian. The Ming Dynasty came about, destroyed the Yuan Empire, and they fled back north to pretty much where they came from. On the way back, though. They also took the name Yuan with them and continued the Northern Yuan Dynasty. The following years were pretty turbulent as there were lots of tribes fighting each other and fighting with China. But in the 16th century, the Mongol nation was united once more under Dayan Khan. Buddhism was also introduced to Mongolia around this time, and after the leaders turned to Buddhism, everyone else kind of did as well. In the late 1600s, Inner Mongolia became a part of China, and Outer Mongolia kind of had autonomy over their life. It was until the end of the Qing Dynasty in 1911 that Mongolia demanded for their independence from the new government, the Republic of China. The first president of the republic, Yuan Shikai, insisted that Mongolia was part of their republic, but Mongolia declined the invitation. As their previous agreement was between the Qing Dynasty and Mongolia, not the Republic of China. Mongolia finally became an independent nation in 1921 with the help of the Soviet Union, and for a long while they were pretty much best friends. Mongolia even became the Mongolian People's Republic, as in a communist state. They also served a good buffer both politically and geographically while Russia and China were not friendly. But the Soviet Union wasn't all friendly towards Mongolia either, as Stalin led the Red Terror, 
commanding Mongolian leaders to kill their own people, which resulted in over 30,000 deaths. Fast forward to the early 90s, Mongolia transitioned from a people's republic to a representative democracy with all sorts of freedom. Some interesting facts about Mongolia. Mongolia is home to many exotic animals such as the snow leopard, gray wolves, Bactrian camels, and a type of horse called a taki. People-wise, the traditional housing tent you often see in relation to Mongolia is known as a yurt which is a round tent, perfect for a nomadic lifestyle. Nowadays, though, they are actually referred to as gur, meaning home in Mongolian. They can be taken apart and rebuilt, also the size can be adjusted, which is pretty convenient. I don't have to tell you that horse riding is a big thing in Mongolia. I don't know if everyone can ride horses, but I'm guessing if you live in the city, it's not going to be super necessary. The most popular sports in Mongolia include wrestling, horse racing, and archery. Kind of old school and pretty different from what we see on a daily basis. Another interesting part of Mongolia is what is called throat singing. It's really, really interesting and you should definitely look that up on YouTube for some different music genres. Not sure what comes to mind when you think of Mongolia, but aside from imagining Mulan fighting them, I also have an image of Khal Drogo and his guys from Game of Thrones, except with more clothing on, since it's cold. So that's probably enough intro for Mongolia. Today's case involves not only Mongolia, but also Malaysia. The victim was Mongolian, and although the details of the case can get a bit murky, lots of people seem to already know or believe what really happened. This is a pretty terrible murder, as they usually tend to be, I know, of a young woman from Mongolia. This case involves plenty of rumors, accusations, denials, so basically lots of he said, she said. This is the case of Sherry Bug Altantuya, who very likely got involved with the wrong people. Let's begin. So let's start from the very beginning. Sherry Bug Altantuya whom I will refer to as Altantuya from now on, was born on May 6, 1978. Her family was from Mongolia, but when she was a child, her parents were working in the Soviet Union, so that's where she and her sister went to school for a bit. Because of her studies and background, she was able to learn many languages that were probably pretty useful in that area, including Mongolian, Chinese, Russian, English, and later on a bit of French. All these languages seem to have nothing in common, so major props to her. While she had a pretty successful time in school, she did not have so much luck in the love department. Altantuya returned to Mongolia in the year 1990 when she was 12, and a few years later she met and fell in love with a Mongolian musician that went by the name Madai. The two got married, and she gave birth to her first child in the year 1996, when she was only 18. This marriage did not work out, and after the two divorced, her child went on to live with her parents, aka the grandparents. At that time, Altantuya was said to have been studying to become a teacher, but she put that aside and left to go to France for a short period of time. 
Her mother denies this, but Altanduya was said to have taken up some modeling courses. I mean, she was good-looking and probably tall, so this claim wasn't really crazy or anything. Whatever the motive of her friend's trip was, wasn't really that important, though. She returned to Mongolia shortly after and remarried, giving birth to another child in the year 2003. Like her last marriage, though, this also did not work out and the child once again was left with Altantuya's parents. During the late 90s and early 2000s, aside from her time in France, Altantuya used her language skills for work. She was a translator and traveled constantly for work, which I guess made it hard for her to look after her own kids. During her time as a translator, she visited China, Singapore, and Malaysia, but mostly Malaysia. The last time she would step foot on Malaysian soil would be around October 2006, and it would also be the last time anyone would ever hear from her. So, what happened to her? You already know she was murdered, but how? According to friends and family, the last time anyone ever seen or heard from Altantuya was around mid-October, presumably a day before she was reported missing, which would be around October 19th. Her cousin was concerned and reported her missing when she hadn't heard from her, and the cousin even went to the Mongolian embassy in Bangkok to seek further assistance. I know, it might sound a bit strange to want to report somebody missing only one day of not hearing from them, but that was definitely something worth noting. Almost as if the cousin was expecting something to have happened if Altantuya did not respond within hours. Anyway, police took the missing person's report seriously and thus began a search for Altantuya. Was she kidnapped? Did she leave because she needed to leave? Did she cut off contact on purpose? So many possibilities, but I guess everyone was prepared for the worst. The police tried to trace her steps, talk to people she knew and those associated with her, both work and personal. The investigation kind of led nowhere at first because it kind of felt like there was an invisible wall blocking their path wherever they went and whenever they found something they thought could be a lead. Almost like someone was putting up these invisible walls. But then again, hindsight is always twenty twenty, mostly because of what they found out later. A month after the search for Altantuya, the police were somehow led to a forested area in Pukak Alam, a township approximately 30 miles away from Kuala Lumpur. The police combed through the forested area, presumably looking for a body, which is worst-case scenario. I highly doubt they were looking for her camping out in the middle of nowhere. But man, what they found was definitely ten times worse than the worst-case scenario. In a path in the wooded area, there was a charred and caved-in hole on the ground that looked like something had burned through it. Around them, all over the trees and the bushes, extending as far as 9 meters or 30 feet away, were pieces of decaying flesh and bones. I mean, it could be human. It could be animal. The police and the forensics team could not really identify what or who it was, so they bagged everything and took it for a DNA test, and it turns out it was 100% Altantuya. 
Police and investigators tried to piece together what could have possibly gone down in that forest that resulted in that scenario. The burnt hole they found tested positive for C4 explosives. C4 explosives is a type of plastic explosive which was once used during the Vietnam War. Less than a pound of C4 can kill several people on impact. And with more, you can destroy vehicles and even buildings. So very likely, Alton Tuyo was blown to pieces with C4 explosives. I mean, a bullet would have done the job, but I guess when you really don't want someone found, you do what you think is best. Everyone worked hard on this case, including trying to piece together what was left of Alton Tuyo's body. According to the post-mortem examinations, it was discovered that Altantuya very likely suffered two gunshot wounds before being blown apart. They couldn't determine if she had died from the bullets, though, as it was possible that the explosives finished what the bullets failed to do. It was also believed that she was tied and left on the ground or tied to a tree, and according to how her remains were discovered, it was very likely that C4 was strapped onto many different parts of her body probably to make sure that she would end up unrecognizable. This is one of the worst ways to die for sure. I mean, yes, it's probably quick, but I cannot imagine the fear of knowing what's going to happen, waiting for the explosives on you to go off. Just days after discovering Altantuya, police arrested a few people they had their eyes on. Number 1. Abdul Razak Baginda a defense analyst from the Malaysian Strategic Research Center. Number two, Azila Hadri, a chief inspector in the police force. Number three, Corporal Cyril Azar Umar. These two men from the police force had both been members of the Malaysian Police Special Action Force and worked as bodyguards for the Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Najib Abdul Razak. So do you see a slight connection here? All three men were involved with the government one way or another, but this wasn't all. There was something else. Remember Alton Tuya's cousin? Well, they presented a photo Alton Tuya had sent them when she was still alive. There were three people eating together in that photo. The woman was Alton Tuya. One of the men, the defense analyst, Abdul Razak Baginda. And as for the other man, he was just known as a higher-up government official. Altantuya had once introduced Baginda to her cousin when they were all in Hong Kong. And although he was introduced as a friend at first, Altantuya later revealed to her cousin that they were actually in a relationship. When the Malaysian police took a look at the photo, they immediately knew this was going to be trouble. The government official in the photo was the then Deputy Prime Minister of Malaysia, Najib Abdul Razak. Note that Najib Abdul Razak later on became the Malaysian Prime Minister and served between 2009 to 2018. Now, before we continue on with the investigation and the aftermath, and maybe justice, let's discuss what was going on between Alton Tuya and her two friends in the photograph. According to sources close to both Altantuya and defense analyst Abdul Baginda, 
The two met via the then-Deputy Prime Minister, Najib Abdul Razak, when they were traveling and working together on a business trip to France around early 2000s to 2005. Altantuya was very likely working as a translator. And the business itself? Well, Malaysian government officials were in France negotiating the purchase of Scorpion submarines, a type of diesel electric attack submarine. I guess things got interesting and pretty heated between the two, so a love affair seemed to have developed. Baginda, of course, was married, so everything had to be on the down low. It was alleged that he constantly bought her things and paid for her to keep her around. I guess also as a way to apologize for not being able to be her one and only. Altantuya was relatively young, in her late 20s, while Baginda was already in his mid-40s. Maybe she wanted a family of her own. Maybe she wanted children with him. Or maybe she just wanted to not have to hide her relationship anymore. Either way... It was said that she grew tired of her role as the mistress and would constantly question him about his marriage, probably hoping that he will get divorced and marry her instead. But this was far from what Baginda wanted. As a government official and in a conservative country, his reputation meant the world to him and of course, being more on the conservative side would benefit him. Baginda was starting to get annoyed of this woman, who didn't know her place. And after she made a series of threats, he decided enough was enough. On the night of October 19, 2006, Baginda asked Altantuya to come meet him at his house to talk. After she left his house at around 9pm, she never made it home. Instead, she was kidnapped by two men and taken to a wooded area where she was murdered. Allegedly, of course. But was this it? I mean, for some people, yes, that's a good enough reason to kill someone. But in this case, there's actually more drama. After news of Altantuya's murder broke out and reached international headlines, a French reporter and Southeast Asian correspondent discovered that while Altantuya and Baginda were out and about in France, doing business and... God knows what else, Baginda was in fact taking commission from the submarine deal alongside Deputy Prime Minister Najib Abdul Razak. How much, you ask? A crazy amount of 114 million euros. Altantuya was there during the negotiations and afterwards she asked her lover for 500,000 US dollars because she helped them close the deal. He refused. So, he decided to get rid of her. She was clearly threatening him, an attempt to blackmail and extort. If he did not give her the money, she would go public with their relationship and the shady deal in France. He could not risk that. So basically, love, sex, and money. It always seems to come down to these three things. So all those government people involved, including Baginda and the other two guys that were arrested, all attempted to cover up their tracks, but one thing they did not realize was that Altantuya was very close with her cousin, and the second she failed to return home, the cousin knew something was wrong. The trial began after the three men were arrested, and immediately, a bomb was dropped. 
A private investigator from the prosecution side revealed some extra information. According to their findings, Alton Tuya had also been sexually involved with the then-Deputy Prime Minister Najib Abdul Razak, but because he was more concerned with his reputation and career, he stopped seeing Alton Tuya, and she instead began another unhealthy relationship with Baginda. Another finding revealed that after Alton Tuya was murdered, Baginda had sent Prime Minister Najib text messages asking for help, very likely hinting that he didn't want to be prosecuted. I don't know how this private detective found this information, but guess what? After he told the court of his findings, the following day, he immediately took back everything he had said and left Malaysia in a hurry. Almost as if he was running for his life? He did reappear again more than a year later in India, and he claimed that he was paid a huge sum of money to leave the country and to never speak of his findings again. But he somehow decided that this was not the right thing to do, so he resurfaced and said that his initial findings on Najib and Baginda were all true. He also said that as long as Najib's party ruled Malaysia, he would never think of returning. I know it sounds pretty dramatic and complicated at this point, but just remember, four government guys trying to save their asses after making poor choices in life, and a girl dies from gunshot wounds and C4 explosions. The reason? Love, sex, and probably money. Well, that seemed to be the story, at least. During the investigation, Cynthia Gabriel, the executive director of Malaysia's Center to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, which is literally shortened to C4, I know, interesting how the world works, told the press about how difficult it was to investigate this case, as it involved people in the government. And one of them, now, just happens to be the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Basically, she felt that people were blocking her investigation from all sides, showing hostility and even slight intimidation. As for the first part of the trial, the High Court decided to acquit the accused defense analyst, Abdul Razak Baginda, a.k.a. Altantuya's lover, for any involvement in Altantuya's murder. Why, you ask? Well, pretty simple. There was never enough evidence implicating him whether he committed the murder himself or if he was the mastermind behind the plans. As for the other two men, they went to trial in 2009. The two men, Cyril Azar and Azila Hadri, pretty much denied being involved in this murder plot, blamed the other for being involved, and also blamed someone higher up for being the mastermind, and they were simply pawns, scapegoats. A lot of boo-hoos, not me's, it was him, etc. After a 159-day trial, both of them were sentenced to death by hanging by the judge because the things they said did not hold up. Of course, the two men appealed their sentence, and a hearing was scheduled for them, but like in 2013, many years later. Time went on, and eventually it was time for the Court of Appeal to do their thing. Shockingly to some, the two men were acquitted of the murder charges. It was stated that the two men seemed to lack concrete motive for killing Altantuya, 
especially since Baginda and the now Prime Minister Najib were found innocent and not legally responsible for this murder. So the tie is loose. But the prosecution found this unfair and appealed again for the acquittal. The case was heard again on June 2014, and in January of 2015, the two men were once again found guilty and resentenced to death. Cyril Azar did not actually attend the second hearing. He seemed to have fled the country before the hearing, probably scared that the court would overturn the acquittal, and he was right. Where was he, though? It was rumored that he had fled to Australia when his conviction was overturned, and once the news got out, he was finally discovered, casually hanging around Brisbane. The thing is, he knew the police were looking for him, and days before he was arrested, he had sent a pretty incriminating text message to some anonymous associate in Malaysia's intelligence agency. The text read, Greetings, boss. I am in difficulties here. I want two million Australian dollars before you come to meet me. After that, I want 15 million. I will not return to Malaysia ever, boss. I won't bring down the PM. He was arrested by Interpol on January 20th, 2015, and was relocated to a detention center in Sydney. Malaysia asked to extradite Cyril, but due to Australia's policy of not sending people back to where the death sentence is a thing, they kind of just held on to him. Also, he was detained on overstaying his visa rather than being a fugitive. But either way, they got him. As you can imagine, Elton Tuya's family isn't exactly pleased with the outcome. She died a pretty horrible death. And with all these rumors about infidelity, money, and bribes, it must be really difficult not knowing the entire story and not being able to do anything about it. In 2016, Altantuya's father made a request to the Malaysian police force and government to reinvestigate the case as he and his lawyers believe that the real culprit and mastermind behind his daughter's murder was still out there, possibly still in office taking more bribes, hurting other people. His prayers were sort of answered, as the new Prime Minister of Malaysia, Mahathir bin Mohamed, stepped up and decided that, ah, yes, this case does indeed require justice. I say new Prime Minister, but this guy has been in the government since the 1960s. He actually retired, but he came out of retirement and is now the Prime Minister at the age of 94. Crazy, I know. But hold on. A lot of other interesting tidbits happened between 2016 to 2019. First off, for Cyril, he's still detained in Sydney. And a year after he was detained in Australia, he somehow managed to post a video claiming the innocence of Prime Minister Najib Abdul Razak. Quote, I understand that it is the intention of certain quarters with vested interest to topple a certain someone. In God's name, the most honorable Prime Minister Najib Abdul Razak was never involved and had no links to the case. End quote. So, which is it, Cyril? Then, as recent as of last year, 2018, he decided to speak out again, but it was really confusing. 
First, he said that he was now finally willing to open up about what had happened and who were those responsible. But he would only do it if he received a full pardon from Malaysia. Maybe he would not receive a full pardon, but it's possible that his sentence could be reduced to years behind bars instead of death by hanging. He also complimented the new prime minister, so most likely just trying to kiss ass. Secondly, Najib Razak, since stepping down from his role of prime minister, has been detained and prohibited to leave Malaysia while he is under investigation for corruption. Maybe this is why Cyril is suddenly eager and willing to talk, because the person he once worked for, the person he once relied on, is no longer the big boss and is now in trouble. As recent as December of 2019, Azila, one of the alleged murderers of Altantuya, confessed that he was acting on orders given by his then-boss, Deputy Prime Minister Najib. Apparently, he had ordered a hit on Altantuya, and the two men carried out the mission. After making this shocking revelation, he is now seeking a retrial, which is likely to take place in April 2020. Najib Razak has done several public speakings, including one at a mosque in Kuala Lumpur, where he swears up and down that he did not order the killing of Altantuya. He wrote a post on Facebook declaring his innocence, stating that, quote, I intend to take a Sumpa Laknat to deny the allegations in a statutory declaration issued by Azila Hadri, end quote. A Sumpa Laknat is basically a sacred oath, and if you lie while you make this sacred oath, you are willing to get punished, struck by lightning, or anything dramatic. Which really... People lie under oath all the freaking time. I don't know how he feels about religion, really, so I can't really comment on this. So before I end this episode, here are a few things to note. Aside from the fact that the whole entire case is really confusing and full of speculation and everyone denying everything and accusing everyone else of doing something... One rumor states that Altantuya may have been pregnant at the time of her murder. So aside from money and the affair, there's now another possible reason to murder her. Another rumor states that the wife of the then-deputy Prime Minister Najib Razak was actually present when Altantuya was shot and blown up. She, like her husband, denied these accusations and both stated that they did not even know her. Hopefully you remember the French reporter and correspondent I mentioned earlier. Well, he committed suicide in April 2019. Really sad. And it was rumored that the reason behind his suicide had to do with his depression, his finances, and his career. As for the real perpetrators behind this murder? Well, time maybe will tell. Or maybe it won't. That would really suck but it also wouldn't be a huge surprise. So there you have it. The murder of a young Mongolian woman and the bunch of government people pretending nothing happened. Najib has always denied, denied, and denied ever seeing, knowing, or having any sort of involvement with Al Tantuya, 
which is super strange considering there is photographic proof. What do you guys think? Does this smell like a huge conspiracy and cover-up? Or do you think it was probably someone else entirely? Someone who just happened to have access to military-grade explosives? To me, everyone is super shady and super irritating how they keep changing their stories. Obviously, if they did team up to kill Alton Tuya, it's unlikely anyone is going to confess to it. Especially Baginda and Najib. They have the most to lose, including power, wealth, family, and respect. As for the two men who are sentenced to death, I believe this whole case will depend on what testimonies they give, and if there's proof. We'll wait till next year, and I'll keep you guys updated if anything else happens. Before I leave, I would just like to inform you all that I will be taking a break in the month of January. I will be doing some traveling, and it'll also be Chinese New Year's here for me. So, just one month. I'll definitely be back, because I have so many more cases I want to cover. And thank you for sticking around. And, ooh, Happy New Year. Happy 2020. And, till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.